Scott LaPierre is the teaching pastor of Woodland Christian Church in Woodland, Washington. He's an office, uh, an author, a conference speaker, as you know, all around the country. Um, he holds an MA in Biblical Studies from Liberty University. He is a former school teacher and an army officer, former army officer. So, without further ado, please welcome Scott LaPierre. Thank you very much for listening. All right, evening everyone. My mic on? Yes, sound good? All right. Well, that was a nice introduction. Thank you very much, Joseph. One of the things Joseph said that I really appreciate was the importance of the time after the conference that you hear all this instruction but then need to apply it. And so he mentioned the benefit his radio station has to then um, you know, walk in the improvement that the conference can provide. And I, I kind of want to piggyback off that because that's one of the reasons that I provide a handout like this. So now you've got the radio station to help you after the conference, and you've also got this handout that I hope can be a help to you after the conference. And so you're going to be filling it out, the blanks during the lessons. We'll start on page, page four, but the few pages before that just kind of have some instruction for how to go about the discussion questions that follow each message. So you'll see at the bottom of each message there are discussion questions. Husbands ask their wives things, and the wives ask their husbands. There's good and bad ways to respond to the questions that are asked. There's good and bad ways to apologize, right? Uh, a bad way to apologize is to use what word when you apologize? What's like the destroyer of apologies? What word? But, but is the destroyer of apologies. So just things like that. You can read that later. I don't expect you to do it now, but I really hope that to apply the teaching that you receive, you will invest in this handout and those discussion questions that will really help you cement the teaching in your mind. And so I think there might be a picture of my family that might be put up. So that's my family there. They're, they can't all be with me. I did, was able to bring my son Johnny. But kind of left to right in the upper left, that's my wife Katie. And then we have a, a daughter in the middle there, Rhea. She's the oldest. And then my oldest son Ricky is next, next to her down to our son George, that my son Johnny, I have my left hand on my son Johnny's shoulders. He's the one who's with us here, and he's, he's holding our son, uh, our ninth child. So I'll tell you this briefly. I just, just thought of this. I came home this one day from work, and my wife looked really upset, and she'd been crying, and so I thought, well, it must have been a particularly difficult day homeschooling or something, right? And she said, no, no, that's not it. We finished reading George Mueller's biography. So my wife reads biographies to the kids, and she finished George Mueller's biography. By a show of hands, who's familiar with George Mueller? He started all those orphanages and, and uh, you know, affected the lives of thousands of, of children. And when he died, the entire you know, city or cities or states came out to celebrate his life. And my wife was so moved by what he had done. And so she said, if God, and this is after we had eight children, and Katie said, if we have another child, if God gives us a son, I want to name him George Mueller. And I kind of laughed. I went like this. I went, ha, ha, ha. And then she wasn't laughing, because I never thought I'd have a son named George. That right there, that's George Mueller that my son Johnny is holding. And so when your wife gives you nine kids, she gets to name them whatever she wants. That's what I say. And so that's George Mueller that Johnny's holding. Well, if you want to go ahead and open your Bible, open your handout to page four, we'll get started on our first message. And you can have your Bibles ready. We'll be turning to Genesis 3. So some years ago, I was teaching on marriage in a fairly interactive environment, like kind of think of a Sunday school setting where people could ask questions. And this one woman raises her hand, and I call on her, but she didn't have a question for me. And she did something else that nobody else had done. She stood up in the middle of this group. She stands up, and she looks visibly upset, 
and she starts berating her husband in front of everyone, in front of the entire class while I was talking about, about marriage. And so <clears throat> there are many good things that I could have said at that moment to her. I could have said, can we just pause and I'll talk to you after the, the teaching is over? Or could I meet with you and your husband during the week? Or why don't we all just take a moment as a group and go ahead and pray, pray for this couple? But because I was so shocked by what she was doing, I pretty much did the worst thing imaginable, which was this. I just stood there staring at her, and the longer that I stared, the more these terrible accusations against her husband came out. Can anyone guess why she was so upset with her husband at that moment? Well, it was actually because of what I was teaching. I was teaching what God's Word says to husbands, and as she thought about her husband and how he did not um, meet that standard, she became very resentful toward him in her heart. And so I decided that if I was ever able to teach on marriage again, not knowing at that time that I'd publish a marriage book or be invited to do conferences like this, but I thought, Lord, if you ever give me another opportunity to teach on marriage, I'm going to go ahead and begin with a couple things so that I can prevent World War III in your homes, right? And so this brings us to lesson one on your handout. As we begin, make the decision to part one. Focus on your weaknesses more than your spouse's. Make the decision to focus on your weaknesses more than your spouse's. The standard for husbands and wives in God's word is so high that if you're a husband, you could be sitting here over these messages listening to what's said to your wife and become upset that she's not more like God's word says. Is the, standard for, is the standard in God's word for husbands high? We're going to need to do better than this over this conference. I'm going to try this again. Is the standard in God's word for husbands high? It's absolutely, what is the standard? You can say, or who is the standard for husbands Christ? So you can't get a higher standard. So could a wife be listening to what's said about her husband and how he's to be like Christ and become upset that her husband isn't more like God's word says that he should be? So what I want to encourage you to do is keep in mind that we all have plenty of weaknesses. Instead of keeping a record of all that your spouse does wrong, remind yourself of your own struggles and your weaknesses as a spouse. Reflect on your own sins over this weekend. And as you do so, it should cause you to both be humble and gracious toward your spouse. There's no way that we can think about all that God has forgiven us for and still be mad at our spouse. So ask yourself these questions. How can I encourage my spouse to fulfill the role that God has given him or her? And ask yourself this, is there anything that I can do that will make being married to me easier? Now, if you ask that question and you can't think of any answers, then you need to repent of what sin? Pride, that would mean, or lying, I suppose, but yeah, repent of the sin of pride. Next part of lesson one, make the decision to part two, turn your frustrations into prayer. Turn your frustrations into prayer. Over the following messages, if you hear some things that make you frustrated toward your husband or wife, I want to encourage you to turn those frustrations into prayer. When one of your spouse's weaknesses come to mind, so later tonight when I'm talking about husbands loving their wives and your wife and you're sitting here 
and you're listening to me say things that don't describe your husband, or maybe I'm talking about bad things, and maybe you think that describes your husband. Well, I want to encourage you at that moment to pray for your husband. Pray for him to be able to grow in those weaknesses. Pray for him to be able to grow in those areas that you don't see lining up with God's word. Take any of those feelings of hurt or betrayal or disappointment and bring them to God and pray that he will help your husband or wife grow in that area. And then also pray that God gives you the grace to be forgiving. Because when we're upset with our spouse, what are some of the things that we tend to do? There's quite a few of them that we tend to do instead of pray. We tend to yell. We tend to gossip. We tend to pout. We tend to ignore. We tend to complain. Lots of sinful things we tend to do. And if we would pray instead, how much better would our marriages look? One more thing to keep in mind is we begin to make the decision to part three Recognize your marriage as a reflection of your relationship with Christ. Recognize that your marriage is a reflection of your relationship with Christ. Let me ask you something. Go ahead and give me your attention for a second. Why do you treat your spouse the way you do? Have you ever thought about that before? Why do you treat your spouse the way that you do? Well, I would submit to you that you treat your spouse the way you do because of your relationship with Christ. Let me say that one more time. You treat your spouse the way you do because of your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with your spouse is a reflection of your relationship with Christ or an overflow of your relationship with him. There's a certain lie that we can be tempted to believe. I can be a mature Christian and a bad spouse. And I've met people who think that they're very mature Christians, but they're bad husbands and they're bad wives. And this is a lie because our Christianity is directly related to our relationship with our spouse. We treat our spouse the way we do because of our relationship with Christ. Our relationship with our spouse is one of the clearest outpourings or overflows of our relationship with Christ. Because the truth is, if we love Christ, then who else are we going to love? We're going to love our spouse because we know that's what pleases him. There are few callings in our lives, if any, that are as great as being a husband or wife. Few things say as much about our relationships with Christ as our marriages do. So let me briefly address husbands first. The primary command for husbands is what? Brothers, you should be able to say this to me. What's the primary command for husbands? Love your wives. Ephesians 5.25, as Christ also loved the church. So brothers... We don't love our wives, and this is important, because they're always lovable. We don't love our wives because they always submit to us. We don't love our wives because they always respect us. We don't love our wives because they're perfect. We love our wives because we love Christ. The way that we love and cherish our wives is not a reflection of our wives. And almost everyone that comes into counseling wants to try to convince me that they mistreat their spouse because of how bad their spouse is. They mistreat their spouse because of a weakness in their relationship with Christ. If a man says, I am not going to love and cherish my wife because she, and he thinks he makes her look bad, he doesn't know that to me he's making himself look bad. 
He thinks he's saying something about his relationship with his wife, but more importantly, he's saying something about his relationship with Christ. Similarly for wives, what's the primary command for wives? What's the primary command for wives? To submit to their husbands. Wives are not expected to submit to their husbands because their husbands are perfect or because their husbands always make the right decisions or because their husbands always love them the way that they want to be loved. Wives are expected to submit to their husbands because they want to submit to whom? To Christ. So if a wife says, I'm not going to submit to my husband because he, and she thinks she's making her husband look bad or she thinks she's saying something about her husband, she's really saying something about herself. She's really making herself look bad because when she says, I'm not going to submit to my husband, she's saying, I'm not going to submit to Christ because he's the one who has given that command. There's no such thing as a spiritually mature man who doesn't love his wife. There's no such thing as a spiritually mature woman who doesn't submit to her husband. It wouldn't be too much to say that if you're a husband, you can't love Christ without loving your wife. And if you're a wife, you can't submit to Christ without submitting to your husband. So I'm going to make a commitment to you as we begin, and this is why I stress this so much. I am not going to try to convince husbands that they should love and cherish their wives because they deserve it. And ladies, I am not going to try to convince you that you should submit to your husband or respect him because he deserves it. But I will say this, who does deserve your love and who does deserve your submission? Christ does. And so keep in mind that when you obey these commands, you're not primarily doing it for your spouse. You're doing it for Christ. And the reason it's so important to think about that is because that's the relationship, the vertical one that you must draw on. I had to learn this in counseling because so many couples come in and they're so upset. You, you can't expect someone to treat their spouse better when they're furious with that spouse. Picture people that come in and they're on the edge of divorce, the brink of divorce with me. I'm going to look at them at that moment when they almost would tell me that they feel hatred for their spouse and say, you need to treat this person better. You can't expect them to draw on that horizontal relationship. They must draw on their relationship with Christ. And so when the person says, well, my husband or my wife, you don't know what he's done or what she's done. And thinking about what their husband or wife has done just makes them matter at their spouse. They need to think about what Christ has done for them. That's how the gospel works in our marriages to improve them. Now let's turn to Genesis 2.16. Genesis 2.16. So over this weekend, as we talk about any commands for marriage, while you turn there, just let this part wash over you. Be thinking about, I am doing this for Christ. I'm doing this because I love him. I'm doing this because of what he has done for me. I am not doing this primarily for my husband or primarily for my wife. I'm doing it for my Savior. We're going to go through these verses quickly because they're familiar to you. Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. One thing to notice in these verses is it says God commanded the man. And God gave this command to the man before Eve was created. Have you ever thought about that before? It's probably not what we would intuitively expect, right? When would you expect God to give the command not to eat? after Eve had been fashioned from Adam. But by giving the command to Adam, then he had to relay that command to Eve. She had to receive the command from Adam. She never heard the command from God himself, and she had to trust her husband. It was part of God establishing Adam's headship. Now, since sin had not come into the world yet, this teaches us something important. I want to be really clear about this. We see headship in the marriage relationship prior to the fall. 
Why is that important to consider that headship existed prior to the fall? Because then we recognize that it's not part of what? The curse or the fall. This brings us to lesson two. God created headship before the fall. God created headship before the fall. If you think headship began after the fall, you're going to see it as part of the curse or a consequence of sin. But if you see headship existing at creation, you see it as part of God's natural, healthy, divine plan for husbands and wives. Now, with Adam's headship established, look at Genesis 3.1 to see what Satan attacks. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And then notice this. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it lest he die. And then verse 4, notice this, The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And I just want you to notice the contrast. We read Genesis 2.16, and it says, God said to the... We read Genesis 3, and the serpent said to the... God spoke to Adam, the devil spoke to Eve. God established Adam's headship. The devil tried to attack it. Verse 5, God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then right here, Eve had a choice. She could submit to her husband who had given the command, or she could submit to the devil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then right here, Adam had a choice. He could submit to God who had given him the command, or submit to his wife. And so something important to notice about the fall is that there was this reversal of the roles. Eve usurped her husband's authority by ignoring the command that he gave her, and Adam chose not to lead, but submitted to his wife instead, ignoring the command that God gave him. Skip to verse 9. The Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. Verse 11, God still speaking to Adam, who told you you were naked. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you shall not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. This is pretty serious blame shifting right here, isn't it? She gave me the, of the fruit of the tree and I ate. And I just want you to notice that God didn't even address Eve. He went to Adam and spoke to him repeatedly. And why is that? Because he was the one who had been given the command and he was the one who had the headship and the relationship. Therefore, he was the one who was more responsible. When you read the New Testament, you see that this is confirmed. Romans 5, 12 through 22. I'll just skip, uh, share a few parts of it. Through one man, sin entered the world. By one man's offense, many died. By one man's offense, death reigned. Through one man's offense, by one man's disobedience. 1 Corinthians 15, by man came death. In Adam all die. No mention of a woman, no mention of Eve. And it's kind of interesting because I look at the account and think, you know, it looks like Eve had a little more to do with it. There's no, there's no mention of her whatsoever. The entire fault of the fall is placed squarely on the man's shoulders. In fact, because Eve ate first, if you had to guess, you might expect that she would be the one that would be held most responsible. But instead, there's no mention of her. Because sin's been introduced, Adam and Eve's relationship is going to be very different, and every other relationship or marriage to follow them or by extension, is also going to be very different, including ours, because we have all received sin natures. 
Now marriages exist with two people who are cloaked in flesh and selfishness and temptation and uh, filled with susceptibility to sin. So in Genesis 3, 16 and 17, it describes the curse on all of creation. We're going to look at the parts that deal with marriage, or here's a way to say it. These verses describe what marriage looks like in a fallen world. And so the fall affected both sides of the marriage. Husbands and wives received sinful natures that manifest themselves in different ways. Men and women are different. It's one, one of the things that we're seeing, just, I don't want to go down this rabbit trail too long, but the world over the last just years, not even decades, has done something that I never imagined when I was growing up to say, the slide was, well, a man could marry a man or a woman could marry a woman. We've seen homosexuality since Genesis 19. But then we're now saying, well, a man can be a man or a man could be a woman and a woman can be a man. And now we've went even further and said, well, a man doesn't have to be a man or a woman. Uh, he could be a they or a them. We're even destroying the English language. I used, to, I used to be a school teacher. They and them are plural words, right? You can't have a person that's a they. You can't have a person that's a them. To have they or them, you have to have more than one person. So this, but this is what we're doing. And my, and my point is, we want to continue to hold to God's word and recognize the differences between the genders. And part of those differences are the temptations that men and women face. And so look in Genesis 3.16 to see some of the temptations common to women. To the woman, God said, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then notice the words, your desire shall be for your husband. Considering this is a curse and not a blessing, and I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people who perhaps have like an egalitarian uh, view of scripture, which is to say they don't notice the distinctions between men and women regarding roles and responsibilities. That's egalitarian. Complementarian is to say C-O-M-P-L-E, complement fit together, not C-O-M-P-L-I. Complementarians, which I don't really know how anyone could honestly read scripture and hold to a different view than this, recognize the distinctions between men and women and the roles and responsibilities that they have. But many times egalitarians argue that this is saying that Eve or all women by extension are going to desire their husbands in some affectionate or loving way. We've got to be honest with the text. This is a curse. It is not a blessing. It is not going to be talking about a wife desiring her husband in some positive or godly way. It's referring to wife's desire to control her husband. And this brings us to lesson three. Wives are tempted to part one, control their husbands. So prior to the fall, there still would have been headship or submission, but how would women or Eve have submitted? Joyfully, readily, willingly, easily. That's what submission would have looked like if the fall had not taken place. One of the basic rules of Bible interpretation, and one I'd encourage you to remember, not just for the rest of this conference, but for any time that you're reading God's word, is you can often learn the meaning of words by considering how they're used elsewhere in Scripture. And so if you're ever looking at a word or even a phrase, and you suspect that it doesn't mean what it looks like it's saying, you want to look for that word's use or that phrase's use elsewhere in Scripture. 
And if you can happen to look in the same book of the Bible, the closest to where that word is being used, the better, because then you're getting the same author of Scripture. God wrote Scripture, but he used the personalities and traits of, different, of, the, of the men who wrote. And so <clears throat> this same phrase, desire, when it says Does his desire or her desire is for her husband, occurs in Genesis 4, if you want to look there with me. It actually only occurs three times in Scripture. Don't turn to Song of Solomon. I think it's Song of Solomon 7. That's another place that this phrase occurs. And then the other two times the word desire is used is in Genesis 3 and then in Genesis 4. So let's see Genesis 4. Verse 4, Abel brought the firstborn of the flock and other fat, and the Lord rejected Abel and his offering. But God didn't respect, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Cain's offerings rejected. He faces the two choices that all of us face when we sin. We can repent and do what's right, get the sin out of our lives, or we can become proud and angry, which means letting the sin control us. And God sees this happening with Cain. And so he graciously attempts to uh, reveal this to him or warn him about what sin wants to do. So verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And then notice this, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Do you see the parallelism between Genesis 4, 7 and Genesis 3, 16? The parallelism is even stronger in the Hebrew. It is the exact same words used in Genesis 3.16 when it says, Your desire will be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. The only difference is the word husband is swapped for, for sin. And so here's the question. What kind of desire did sin have for Cain? Was it a godly loving desire? Was it a gentle supportive affectionate desire? No, it was a desire to control him. And so the point is, just like sin had a desire to control Cain, wives will have a desire to control their husbands. Just like Cain was not to let sin rule over him, husbands are to not let their wives rule over them, or to maintain headship would be a a different way to say it. And the temptation for wives to control their husbands often manifests itself a certain way. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. Wives are tempted to part to nag their husbands. We are going to get to the husbands, ladies. You're being very patient while we address. (laughs) And gentlemen, you're doing a good job not saying amen when I said these lessons here. Good job. So we're going to have to think outside Genesis 3 to find the support for this temptation that women face. Is there a book of the Bible that comes to mind that presents this struggle that women have or presents women nagging? What book of the Bible comes to mind? Is there a book of the Bible that comes to mind where it discusses women nagging? Proverbs, yes. I'll read these verses quickly. Proverbs 19, 13. The contentions are nagging of a wife or a continual dripping. Proverbs 21, verse 9 and 25, 24. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious or nagging woman. And so the idea is a woman's nagging could be so bad that a husband would rather sit on the corner of a rooftop being exposed to uh, terrible weather versus being in the home with his wife. And who wrote this? Solomon did, 700 wives, 300 concubines. If anyone would know what it would be like to be with, with a nagging wife, it would be him. But hey, if, you're, if you're one of 700 wives, then you've got a good reason to nag your husband, right? Proverbs 21, 19, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious or a nagging, angry, nagging or angry woman. And this time the man would rather be in the wilderness 
not exposed to uh, terrible weather, but exposed to wild animals versus being in the house with his wife. And so the point, though, I mean, this is hyperbole or exaggeration, which is common in Scripture, but to make a point, you can't miss the point that when a wife nags her husband, it causes her husband to want to do what? Leave or just be far away from her. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious or nagging woman or alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grafts oil with his right hand. Well, you can't restrain the wind and you can't pick up oil or any liquid, obviously, because it runs through your fingers. Well, why does it say this? Because the point is you similarly cannot restrain a nagging woman because to respond is generally to cause her to nag even further. And so it's an impossible dilemma. The definition of nagging, continually fault-finding, complaining, petulant, persistently recurring or unrelenting. And so ladies, I just want to ask you a tough question. Is this how your husband would describe you? Now, if you really want to know, this is one of the discussion questions in the handout. And so go home and and at some point ask your your husband when he's seen you uh, behave this way or act this way. Now, one of the reasons that nagging doesn't work on husbands relates to one of our weaknesses, stubbornness. And this brings us to lesson four. Husbands are tempted to part one, be stubborn. Husbands are tempted to part one, be stubborn. Okay, now just follow me for a moment to get a little momentum into this one. Genesis 1, God creates, and at the end of each day, it says what? God saw that it was good. But there's one point he looks out and he sees something that's not good. Does anyone remember what that is? What's the first thing he sees that's not good? And it's surprising because the fall hasn't taken place yet. Man being alone, that's right. It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So, and I'll just say this, ladies, it is unfortunate how many women take offense at being called helper. The context of this verse is a husband's inadequacy. If Genesis 2.18 says something bad about someone, it says it about the husband. It is as though God looked down and I'm not joking, I basically said, Scott LaPierre is not going to make it. <laughs> i got to give this guy some help. He is going to struggle throughout his entire life. The wife will be the help, that, the strong aid that he needs. And so what this verse does is it says, it discusses your husband's inadequacy while promoting or elevating you as his wife. So never buck against or cringe at being called helper. Now, one of the main ways that wives help their husbands is by sharing their thoughts, their counsel, and their advice. Now, in my mind, the three great resources that God has given me and that he has given all the other husbands in this room would be the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and our wives. And so the man who disregards his wife's thoughts or counsel is an incredibly foolish man. Being a pastor is really difficult when, because people rarely ask you black and white questions. They don't come up and say, well, you know, should I start getting drunk? Or should I go steal this? Instead, you get gray area questions like, should I take this job? Should I move here? Do you, should my child marry this person? And as a pastor, you're sitting there and there's this crushing responsibility 
where you feel like you could tell someone the wrong thing. Well, when a husband comes and asks me something like this, do you know one of the first things I say in response to him? What does your wife say? What does your wife think about this? And if he hasn't asked her, he really needs to make sure that he asks her before he asks me. And if he has asked her, then I say, well, what does she say? Because I fully expect God to work through wives to be their husband's helper. Now, there are times that God has used Katie to warn me, to correct me, encourage me, direct me, give me counsel. Now, prior to the fall, how would all husbands have listened or received the counsel and advice from their wives? Very willingly, joyfully, readily, but now we're going to struggle with stubbornness. The definition of stubbornness, unreasonably obstinate, obstinately unmoving, fixed or set in purpose or opinion, difficult to manage or suppress. And so brothers, I would ask you, would your wife describe you this way? I know my wife would describe me this way at times because I, I have asked her. She has pointed out to me when I'm being stubborn. It's not the easiest thing to hear, but it is, it is helpful to know. And so brothers, if you want to know the answer to that question, I would encourage you <clears throat> to go home and to ask your wife if you feel like or if she feels like you're stubborn, and even ask her for some instances if she can remember any. Now, I'm not making excuses for men's stubbornness, but because God created men to be leaders, we're naturally less receptive to being controlled by our wives. And so here's two very unfortunate truths. Men struggle with stubbornness, and women tend to struggle with nagging even more when they feel like their husband is being what? Stubborn. And women struggle with nagging, or, and, and, or I mean, men struggle with stubbornness, and we seem to struggle with it even more when we feel like our wives are nagging us. We dig in our heels. And so it creates this very vicious cycle that can suck the joy out of a relationship. A husband becomes more stubborn when he feels like his wife is nagging him, and a, na- a wife nags her husband even more when she feels like he's being stubborn with her. So if you look back at these words, he shall rule over you, it looks like these words are unnecessary. Because if God has already established the husband's headship in the relationship, why would he write here that he shall rule over you? Well, these words are also part of the curse, and it's discussing one of the struggles that men are going to have as a result of the fall. Some Bibles say dominate you. It's discussing one of the other temptations we face, and this brings us to the next part of lesson four. Husbands are tempted to part to dominate their wives or be cruel to their wives, if you want to think of it that way. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Ephesians 5.25 is pretty much the main husband, love your wife verse that comes to mind. But Colossians 3.19 is also very significant. It says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I want to ask you to think about something. Can husbands nag? Yeah, we can. But why do you think Proverbs only discusses wives nagging? Because there's a greater propensity for wives to nag than for husbands to nag. Can wives be cruel to their husbands? Yes. But why is there not a corresponding verse telling wives not to be harsh with their husbands? Because husbands are the ones who have the greater propensity toward harshness. Women are generally more naturally nurturing and affectionate and loving. So we don't see a verse, we don't see this, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them, wives submit to your husbands and do not be harsh with your husbands. We just don't see that. It's not as much of a struggle for wives. God created man to lead before the fall, and if the fall had never taken place, how would men have led? 
gently, kindly, patiently, lovingly, tenderly. We would have been the perfect picture of love and compassion in our leadership. Now, after the fall, we're still expected to lead, but now we're going to struggle with harshness, being overbearing. John MacArthur said, as the woman tends toward rebellion, the man tends toward tyranny. Matthew Henry said, if the man, if the woman had not sinned, she always would have obeyed with humility and meekness. If the man had not sinned, he always would have ruled with wisdom and love. When did the, when did the battle of the sexes really begin? Okay, give me a chapter. Huh? Genesis 3, that's when the battle of the sexes really began. When does the world say women's lib or feminism began? In the 60s. When did women's lib or when did feminism truly begin? It began at the fall. When did male chauvinism begin? It began at the fall. All of these things had their beginning when we received, when we received sinful natures because that's when men began being cruel and domineering. Look at verse 17 to see another area of temptation for men. To Adam, he said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree, which I commanded you saying you shall not eat. So we recognize Adam's sin was eating the fruit, but God rebuked him for something else. Do you see it in the verse? We know Adam's sin was eating the fruit, but what's the other thing that God rebuked him for here? He says, heeding or obeying the voice of your wife. And this brings us to the next part of lesson four. Husbands are tempted to part three, be passive. Husbands are tempted to be passive. I'll share an observation with you. We know that submission often gets criticized. Nobody criticizes, and I don't mean in the world. I mean, obviously, in the world, but I mean even in the church, submission can get criticized. And some liberal churches or egalitarian churches, they would never even think about talking about women submitting to their husbands. Nobody's going to criticize husbands being commanded to love their wives, but submission is criticized frequently, or, or men, you know, pastors will shrink back from wanting to talk about it. And you know, I'll just tell you this, what I've noticed, I'm, this is an easy place for me to, to preach or put on this conference, to be honest. I'm generally talking to, I believe, a pretty conservative, like-minded group. But I have been in some liberal churches and been invited to preach on these topics. And do you know what I've noticed? They weren't upset with me. It was refreshing for them to hear something that they knew was in God's word that nobody would talk about. Because you cannot read through the New Testament without frequently noticing the primary command for wives. And so they have this nagging suspicion that someone should talk about this. Somebody should deal with this teaching. And when someone finally does, it's like, wow, someone's actually just plainly presenting what God's word says. Because submission gets criticized so much, you would expect that women would be like lined up at the door of my office to come tell me how barbaric or chauvinistic this is. You would think at marriage conferences, I would go out to my booth or my table and women would just come up and confront me and say, who do you think you are talking about wives submitting? This is the, this is the worst thing that I've, I've ever heard and you can't possibly be saying this sort of stuff. I don't hear that. Do you want to know the main criticism I hear from women? My husband won't leave. I do not hear women coming and complaining about having to submit to their husbands. I hear women coming and complaining that their husbands will not be spiritual leaders in the home. Almost every conference I get someone coming up telling me that. 
I can't think of the time that a woman has come up and said, I, you know, God's word says this about somebody and my husband, and I just, I can't stand it. But frequently I get this, can you please tell me how I'll help my husband lead? What can I do to help my husband be the spiritual leader in the home? Why won't he be the spiritual leader that God has commanded him to be? My point is, for many men, the greatest struggle, it's not harshness or domineering. And I'm not downplaying that there are men who are harsh or domineering or abusive. But for many men, the greater struggle is passivity. It's spiritual laziness. It's not leading at all. And the important thing to know is that giving into either of these temptations has negative consequences for the relationship. It's terrible if a man is abusive or harsh or cruel to his wife. But it's also unfortunate when a man will not be a spiritual leader in his home, there are also consequences for that. And here's the interesting thing to consider. Between these two temptations, which one do we see men commit most frequently? Well, that's almost a trick question. I'll acknowledge that up first, because it almost depends what area of the world you live in. What is the most common temptation men give into in the Middle East? It's harshness. Women are treated worse than animals or furniture. But in the United States, we're Churches won't talk about men leading, or they don't even have men leading. What is going to be the primary temptation that men succumb to? Passivity. They don't want to lead. So passivity is the great struggle of our, of our generation, at least in the United States. Now, something I like to do when I'm teaching the Bible, and you notice this over the, over the conference, is look at the Old Testament for examples of the teaching that we're receiving. Because 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 15 tells us that God has given us the Old Testament to provide examples or admonition for the instruction that we receive in the New Testament. So in other words, let me make it real simple. You see something taught or commanded in the New Testament, and you get an example or illustration of it in the Old Testament. So let's look at a few examples. Turn to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, I'll provide the context for these verses. It's been 10 years since God promised Abraham that his wife Sarah would have a child. When God promises that you're going to have a child, how long do you probably expect to wait? Huh? If God tells you you're going to have a child, how long do you think you're going to have to wait? Like nine months, right? <laughs> nine months, that's what I'd say. So it's been 10, 10 years here for Abraham and Sarah. And something has happened in Sarah's heart over these 10 years. Doubt has crept in, as well as a strong desire to control her husband. Look at verse 1. Sarah, Abram's, this is Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And so right here, Abraham faced the same two choices that Adam faced. He could trust God and obey God, or he could submit to his wife. We know what happened. The rest of verse 2 says, Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. Does that sound familiar? When it says Abraham heeded the voice of his wife, does that sound familiar? It does. It's actually parallel Hebrew to Genesis 3 when God condemned Adam for heeding the voice of his wife. It's the exact same words in Hebrew with the exception that it's Abraham instead of Adam. So there's a switching of the roles just like with Adam and Eve. Sarah gives in the temptation to control her husband. Abraham gives in the temptation to submit to his wife. And here's the question for you. How, how well did it go for them? 
it went poorly. There's going to be con- there's conflict between them only a few verses later. And this has happened. I've experienced this in my relationship with Katie, where is, I think she's a wonderful wife, and I hope by the time we get to the end of this conference, you'll be able to tell, I think, very highly of my wife. But there have been some times when I have given in to her, and then she's been upset at me later for giving in to her. And that's basically what happened here with Abraham and Sarah. And the lesson for us is it causes real problems for us when we reverse the roles in our marriages. Go and turn to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21 after Samuel. First Kings 21. And while you're turning there, I'll go ahead and give you the context for these verses. The king of Israel is Ahab. He is a wicked and spineless man, and he happens to be married to a very wicked and controlling woman named Jezebel. And Ahab, although he was wealthy, one of the main problems with being wealthy, at least for people who are controlled by that wealth, is to obtain wealth just makes you want more right? Like think in the language in Ecclesiastes that to, the person who gets riches just wants more riches. And so Ahab has a lot and he just happens to look out and want the one thing that doesn't belong to him, which is this that belongs to this man named Naboth. And because Naboth was a godly man who wanted to obey God's commands, he understood that people were not supposed to get a monopoly on the land and that land was supposed to be passed down to subsequent generations. That's why we see the commands like the Jubilee year where land would be given back to the original owners. And so, so despite the really um, pretty wonderful offer that Ahab made to Naboth, Naboth still rejected it. So Ahab goes home and he's upset and he's pouting about this. His wife Jezebel sees him. He tells her the whole story and then look at verse seven. Jezebel, his wife said to him, you now exercise over Israel. Don't believe that for a second. Jezebel was the one exercising authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, what could Ahab have done right here? He could have said, no, you will not. He could have led, and he said, God forbid him from giving me, God forbid Naboth from giving me his vineyard. You're not going to be a, uh, take it from him. But instead, he submitted to his wife. Jezebel comes up with this plan. I'm going to read it quickly, and as I read it, I just want you to notice the emphasis on her doing it. Her fingerprints are on this from beginning to end. Verse 8, she writes letters in Ahab's name, takes so much control of the situation, she writes the letters like she's him. She seals them with his seal. She writes, she's, she's the one who sends the letters to the elders and nobles dwelling in the city. Verse 9, she wrote in the letters, your, is her plan, she's the one who wrote this, It says, proclaim a fast, seat Naboth with high honor among the people. And she comes up with this plan, and then look at the end of verse 10, and then take him out and stone him that he may die. So she comes up with this plan for Naboth to be murdered so that her husband Ahab can get Naboth's vineyard. And it worked perfectly. Look at verse 16. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and he went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, here's the question I have for you. Because this is Jezebel's plan, because she came up with it from beginning to end, because she sent the letters, wrote the letters, her fingerprints are all over all of it. Is God really going to hold Ahab responsible for something that his wife did? I'm glad you guys asked that. Take a look at verse 19. 
God tells Elijah the prophet, you shall speak to Ahab and say, thus says the Lord, have you, Ahab, murdered and taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your, Ahab's blood, even yours. So God held Ahab completely responsible for Naboth's murder. Just like God held who completely responsible for the fall? Adam. And we don't have a commentary on it, but my suspicion is God would have held Abraham completely responsible for what took place between Abraham and Sarah. And so the point is this, and brother, this is so important. Give me your attention. God holds us responsible for what takes place in our marriages. We cannot be like Adam and say, well, the wife you gave me made me do it. Whether it's Adam, whether it's Abraham, or whether it's Ahab, or whether it's any of us, God holds us responsible as the head of the relationship for what takes place in our homes, in our families, in our marriages. He does not accept us being passive. He does not accept us being lazy, and he definitely doesn't accept us blaming our wives or our children. Now look in verse 25. There was no one like Ahab. So that's pretty bad when you're so bad that God says there's nobody else that even approaches your badness. Who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And this right here is such an important statement, ladies. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And ladies, just give me your, ladies in here, give me your attention for a moment. You need to take these words, I'm not joking, you need to underline them or circle them or highlight them And then you need to draw a little line out to the side and say, it's the same with me. You are stirring up your husband. It's not the same that you're stirring up your husband like Jezebel stirred up Ahab. But it is the same that you're stirring up your husband. There is nobody in your husband's life who influences him as much as you do. It is an impossibility for you as a wife to not be stirring up your husband. So when you read here that Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up, that is exactly what you are doing. It is just a question of whether you are stirring your wife up or your husband up for righteousness or unrighteousness, for godliness or ungodliness. Are you pointing your husband toward Christ? Now you're probably listening, you're like, well, I never point my husband toward Satan. I'm not going to stir my husband up to do evil things. No, you're not, but here's what you might do. You might chop your husband's decisions off. You might not support him. You might not encourage him. You might not help him become all that the Lord wants him to become. And that's how I see women shortchanging their husband's spiritual No, I don't see women coming and saying, hey, honey, you need to go steal this. Hey, have you ever thought about how much money we can make selling drugs? <laughs> you know, these... That's not, if you're sitting here and you're like, I wouldn't say anything like that to my husband. Don't go, you know, I'm not. Ladies, you need to think about whether you're helping your husband grow and become all that the Lord wants him to be. Because you have the potential greater than everything except for the Holy Spirit to influence your husband and point him toward Christ. Now here's what I want you to notice as we approach our last lesson. Prior to the fall, there would have been this perfect peace and harmony between Adam and Eve. Sin turned God's ordained roles into struggles of pride and selfishness. Husbands and wives, we're supposed to be lifelong companions. Now we have these sinful natures that's trying to destroy what God has joined together. And so (laughs) 
tell me if this makes sense. We literally have to fight not to fight. Does that make sense? I feel that in my marriage. I have to, we have to fight not to fight. We have to remind each other when we're about to fight to fight not to fight. <laughs> and I mean fight against the flesh, crucify the flesh, fight for our marriages, fight for each other, remind each other. It's one of my wife's favorite things. Say, we're on the same team. I want you to look at me if you feel upset with me and remember that we're on the same team here. So let me ask, how can marriages survive two people living together who both have sinful natures? Can the effects of the fall be reversed in our marriages so that our marriages can be healthy and joyful as God desires? And this brings us to our last lesson. Reverse the effects of the fall by obeying God's command for marriages. Reverse the effects of the fall by obeying God's commands for marriages or for marriage. So we have this wonderful guide in Scripture that allows us to reverse, let me say it like this, reverse the curse or reverse the effects of the fall in our marriages, and it's the commands that he's given us in his word. In our next message, we'll start looking at the first command for husbands. The fall has the potential to ruin any marriage, and when we resist God's commands, have you ever been in a situation where you're upset with your spouse and verses are going through your mind that you should obey, but you're like choosing not to? That's inviting the fall into your marriage. That's inviting the curse into your marriage. Just like Cain, it's letting sin rule over us. But if we will submit to God's commands, the effects of the fall can be reversed. God's commands can take chauvinistic, cruel, abusive, harsh, passive, spiritually lazy men and help them become strong, godly, loving, patient, spiritual leaders in their homes. God's commands can take controlling, manipulative, domineering women and help them be submissive, respectful, and gentle. Now, after talking about this, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to listen to me, and I'm going to conclude with this, say this, and then you think you need to just white-knuckle it. That you're just going to go home, and in your own effort, you are going to strive to obey these commands, and it's all about how hard you try. That's not it. You need to remember that if you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you, that allows you to obey the commands that God has given. If you're a Christian, the gospel will be at work in your heart to enable you to obey those commands that God has given. So if we had to obey these commands that God's given in our own effort, how should we feel? I would say frustrated, discouraged, defeated, depressed even. But if we remember that we have the power to obey these commands because the gospel is at work in our hearts and lives, we can be encouraged. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, I thank you for the gospel and how it works in our hearts to help us be the husbands and wives that you desire. I thank you for the people who have taken time out of their lives to come uh, listen to someone. I, don't, I suspect most of the people here did, did not know uh, who I am, yet they still came. I believe they want to hear your, your word, Lord, and I pray that's what I would be relaying to them over the following messages. I thank you for each of them and pray that you, I don't know their familiarity with most of this content. I, I would like to believe that they're, they're familiar with it. They at least know the commands you've given, and I pray they would have hearts that are open and receptive to what you want to say to them, Lord. And, and I thank you for um, the brilliant instruction that you've given us and the wonderful ways that it can shape us to be the husbands and wives 
that you desire us to be. I pray that you would be plan. I know there's a lot of material that comes over tonight and then tomorrow morning, and I pray that you just give each person here a heart that can receive all the seed that you want to plant. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.